We're in Luke chapter 9 is where we find ourselves this morning. Um, So open your Bibles, open your Bible apps. Uh, Our text this morning is really important text. I know I could say that every week, but um, really important in answering the question, who is Jesus? We've been talking about the title of our, our, uh, our talk, our sermon this morning is called The Glory of the Sun. And let me just say right up front, because um, I want to get right into the text or right into an introduction. I'm hiding the introduction in the first point, okay? We'll put that right up. I know, you're not used to it, I know. I'm putting it up right away, I know. I don't usually do that. Um, so four things, four headings, okay? I want to talk about the context of glory as we run into this text, but I also want to uh, look at the revelation of glory, the mission, and the descending of glory. So we're kind of going to be talking about the glory of the sun as we look at chapter 9. Uh, thank you, Jeannie, for reading for us. Uh, verses 28 through 36 is where we'll be. But I want to begin, as I said, with the context of glory and kind of see this text in its context. Very important. If you've been tracking with us, you know from the very beginning of this wonderful gospel account written by Dr. Luke, who was carried along by the Holy Spirit, revealed to us that Jesus conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a, of a, of a mom, a teenage unwed girl from Nazareth, will be the son of the Most High God. He's promised to be the son of David, 2 Samuel 7, that promise of the Old Testament. He will come, he will reign, and he will rule as king in righteousness and justice over an eternal kingdom. Earlier we saw he had three titles that, that the, the scriptures gave him. The Savior as the deliverer, the Messiah, the anointed one, and the Lord indicating his sovereign authority. And throughout his ministry he has been validating his personhood as king of kings and authenticating his message of the kingdom. It's both present because Jesus has come, he inaugurated the kingdom at his coming, and in the future when he comes back to redeem, to restore, to renew, and to reconcile all of creation Back onto himself, back to wholeness, back to shalom. All the miracles, all the healings, all the rebuking of demons, <coughs> raising the dead, authority over creation, is pointing to who King Jesus is and what he has come to do. Also, during his preaching, during his healing, and uh, uh, authority, and, and uh, te- preaching the gospel, Jesus has been calling people to become his disciples, remember that, to come and follow him, to learn from him, to learn what it means to be a Christ follower. And the crowds are growing. The disciples are increasing. He's already anointed and appointed his 12 apostles. Opposition is also mounting. Many people are asking the question, who is this Jesus? All this is going on, and people are still asking, who is this Jesus? We saw finally in chapter 9. Jesus turns to his disciples. They're at Caesarea Philippi. They're getting some rest. And he asks them, chapter 9, verse 18, Who is everybody else saying that I am? What are the crowds saying? What's the word on the street? And they answer him, some saying John the Baptist, others saying Elijah. Some, there are others who also say some prophet has come back, risen from the dead. But then Jesus says, but who do you, plural, he's talking to his apostles, who do you say that I am? And Peter, the the spokesman, uh, jumps right in. You are the Christ of God. Chapter 9, verse 20. We learn from Matthew chapter 16 that Jesus 
told Simon Peter that he didn't come up with that by himself. Blessed are you, Simon Bajona, Jesus says, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father revealed it to you in heaven, from heaven. And right after that profession, we see in chapter 9, verse 20, we see in verse 21 that uh, uh, Jesus begins to tell them in verse 21 and 22 that the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, and be crucified, and rise from the dead. And we looked at this text a couple of weeks ago, and we noticed that in Matthew and Mark's account, it is at that time when Jesus tells them about his crucifixion, his suffering, his rejection, that Peter rebuked God. Matthew 16. Peter's response to what Jesus said the Christ will do, suffer and die. And Peter says, far be it from you, Lord. This will not happen to you. It shall not happen. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Peter. No, that's not what he said. Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. He's seen Peter was a spokesman for the enemy at that time. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're not thinking about the mission. You're not thinking about what I came to do. You're not thinking about eternity. You're thinking about, he says, the things of man. The things of this earth. We said Peter was confused because Jesus is bringing these two ideas together. He's the Christ. The anointed one. The son of David. The king. The Messiah. And then he says he's also the suffering servant. The one Isaiah spoke about in multiple places within Isaiah. This mysterious servant of the Lord who will come and he will suffer. Chapter 43 of Isaiah, 44, 53. See, the people of God had these ancient promises and this messianic kingly hope of the kingdom of God. A kingdom without sin, a king without injustice, rebellion, death, and sickness. A complete turnaround of the curse, Genesis 3. To bring righteousness and peace and justice to the world. But Jesus says, you know what? It's not coming the way you think it's coming. It's coming the way of suffering of the cross and the resurrection. And Peter's head just about exploded. Yeah, I am the Christ. I am that one. I am the king of kings, but I'm going to suffer and die. It's like, no. Then Jesus turned to the crowd And he says to them in chapter 9, verse 23, If anyone come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Pastor Ricky, great job last week. Said it's a call to trust and follow Jesus' lead. Even when it seems counterintuitive in our minds, we have to follow him. Deny ourselves, walk with him. Verse 24, whoever would save his life, you want to save it, you're going to lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What would profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Pastor Ricky said, by God's grace, the Spirit opens eyes to see the folly of world gain and beauty of Christ. To see the beauty of Christ. What does a profit a man if he gains the whole world? Nothing. What does a profit a man if he gains Christ? Everything. Pastor Ricky said, everything. If we know Christ truly understand the truth of the gospel, we need to recognize that we can't be number one. That rubs us the wrong way. We are to be willing to suffer as Christ suffered. We are to surrender our lives to Christ, and we are to willingly surrender earthly gain. Want to follow Christ? That's what it looks like. And then King Jesus says in verse 26, for followers of Christ, whoever is ashamed of me, 
you want to be a follower, remember this. Whoever ashamed of me and my words, of him will what? The Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory. Not just his glory. And the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now remember, when Jesus used the title for himself, title he loved to use, Son of Man, he's referring many times, here included, he's referring to Daniel chapter 7 of the Old Testament. When Daniel says there's one who's coming like the Son of Man, God coming into human history, coming from the presence of the Father, who will have all authority, Daniel says, all glory, sovereign power, and all people, nations of men, every language, will worship him, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom, the Son of Man, is God in the flesh, and my kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, look, that's Son of Man, Daniel 7, I'm going to come. When I come again, I'm coming in, in my glory, and I'm coming in my Father's glory. Now, you need to understand, when we talk about glory in the, in the, in the scriptures, you need to understand that, that the Bible declares that there are different levels of glories, weightiness. That God does delegate glory to his creatures. There's the glory of the sun, the moon, glory of animals, the glory of human beings. None of which could ever even approach or come close to the transcendent majesty of God's divine glory. The glory, the kavod, Hebrew, doxa in Greek. Weightiness that belongs uniquely and, and, and uh, 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 only to God himself. When we speak of the glory of God, we speak about his infinite worth, his incalculable value that God has in and of himself. The glory speaks of his infinite worth. It speaks of his magnificence, his radiance, his weightiness, his prominence, his preeminence, his majesty, his holiness, his purity, his worthiness, his superiority that he alone inherently possesses, the glory of God. It is his eternal glory from time to time, we see throughout history, throughout the scriptures, appears to us the Shekinah glory, the cloud of radiance and brightness, so blind that no one can look at it. And he says in Isaiah chapter 42 that he will never, 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 ever share his divine glory with anyone. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, my glory, divine glory I give to no other, nor my praise you carved idols. So there is finite glory and there is infinite glory. One is given to others and the other ones he will not share with anyone. John 17. Jesus in the upper room lifts up his eyes to heaven and says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, Jesus speaking, glorify me in your own presence, glory in your own presence, listen, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus tells his disciples that when he returns, he's going to be accompanied by his glory and his Father's glory. Jesus, who is truly God and truly man, has infinite glory. Now, the only way that God's infinite glory, that he will not share with anyone, will be manifested by the Father and the Son, follow me, if they are co-equal, co-eternal, one glory, one majesty. 
The infinite glory will share with no one. The Father, Son, and Spirit, one God, manifest infinite glory. When I come, I will come in glory. Then he says, about a week later, in our text, the Mount of Transfiguration, the appearance of his face was altered, verse 29. His clothes became dazzling white, verse 32. Peter was heavy, woke up, and said, it says in verse 32, they saw his glory, and the two men stood with him. Verse 34 of chapter 9, a cloud came and overshadowed them, that's a pointing to the glory, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Okay? Now keep your Bibles open. I want to show you something. It is between Jesus revealing himself as the ultimate anointed one, the Christ of God. He's the Messiah. He's the King. He's going to rule and reign. But first he's going to Jerusalem. Not going to a throne. He's going to a cross. He's going to suffer. He's going to be rejected. Verse 26, he, he, he promises he'll come again in glory. I'm, not going to, I'm going to stay dead I'm not going to stay on the cross. I'm going to rise. I'm going to come again in glory. Okay, you see that in verse 26. Then we jump down to our text. There's this glorious transfiguration. His appearance was altered. His clothing became dazzling white, and they saw his glory. Between those verses is verse 27. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. You have Jesus coming. I want you to track it with me. He's the king of kings, lord of lords, the promised Messiah, the, the ultimate David. He will reign and rule in righteousness. Verse 20 of, of chapter 9, he's the Christ of God. He's going to die. He's going, he's going to be crucified. We can't do that. Uh, Peter's like, well, how could that be? Well, you don't understand. It is both the Christ and the one who's going to suffer. He'll be He'll die, he'll rise again. But Peter, I'm coming back in glory. Verse 26, I'm coming back in my Father's glory. But there's somebody here. There's, there's some people here. that are standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And then all of a sudden, between I'm coming back and, and here's, the, here's, here's my glory on the mountain, he's saying there's some here that will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And Pastor Ricky mentioned that verse 27 has been interpreted in a few ways. And most likely, as he rightly said, there's more than one fulfillment of the text, of the prophecy. Many times in Scripture, we have more than one fulfillment of prophecy. But the immediate fulfillment, the immediate fulfillment of, of, of there are some here that will not taste death, is when Peter, James, and John get a glimpse of, of the kingdom of God because they get a glimpse of the intrinsic glory of King Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Yes, Jesus will die. Jesus will rise. So he'll, his body will be uh, uh, transformed, not like this, but to a heavenly body where he ascends into heaven. The Holy Spirit will come at Pentecost. Ricky mentioned that, yes. But the immediate fulfillment here, I believe, is happening on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember that both the Hebrew and the Greek word for kingdom is first and foremost... First of all, authority to rule, the sovereignty and the sovereign king himself, and secondarily, over the realm in which he reigns. So there are some of you standing here who will not die until you see the Son of Man coming in royal majesty, because they will have a personal preview, not an ultimate preview, not the final preview, but a preview of the kingdom, because they see Jesus in his kingliness, and his glory being revealed 
on the Mount of Transfiguration. They see his splendor. They see his majesty as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Yes, he will die. He will rise. Yes, the Spirit will be given. And Pastor Ricky mentioned that. Absolutely. But this special manifestation of the beauty, the incalculable worth, the value of Christ to his disciples was not only meant to reveal his true identity, which we'll, we'll talk about that, but it comes right in the text where there, Jesus, through this revelation of his glory, this transfiguration, is, is, is encouraging them, is affirming to them that the Messiah will suffer, the, the Messiah will die, the Messiah will be rejected, and the Messiah will rise again, but he also will come again. In fact, here's a preview of my kingliness. Here's a preview of, of my glory as a way to say, I will establish the kingdom. The promise, the hope, the, 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 the expectation of all the Jewish people, the longing for that kingdom to come. Jesus says it's coming and gives them a glimpse of his glory. The glory of the Son. Jesus takes his closest disciples. He's going to reveal himself. Takes them to a mountain. Closest ones. Takes three. Peter, James, and John. And once again, Luke tells us, you see this in the text, he's praying. Luke has a way of just saying, before these things happen, these important aspects of Jesus' ministry, what is Jesus doing? He's praying. At his baptism, choosing of, choosing of the twelve, confession of Peter, transfiguration, he's praying. And family, I can't help but say it again, especially in times of, of, of uncertainty, major decisions, pray. What college should I go to? You know, where, what school shall I attend? Pray. Jesus gives us an example. Many important decisions that he is making. He is seeking the Father before he makes those decisions. And now, as he's praying, he'll give three men a unique privilege to get a glimpse. To get a glimpse before they die. What everyone else will get to see when they die and that is a manifestation of the glory of God the Son. Imagine that. When we leave planet Earth and our eyes open, we are going to see the Lord Jesus like we have never seen him before. Praise God. <laughs> Looking forward to that day. Glorified Christ in heaven. They're getting a glimpse of it now. Everyone else has to wait. Everybody else has to wait. And what we see here, what happens... In this transfiguration, I was thinking about it, I was talking about it uh, this morning. How can you preach on something like this? Like, what was that really like? So I said, you know what? I wondered, I don't remember growing up seeing like the transfiguration in any of the Jesus movies. So I did a little YouTube search. And there was, more, there was, there was one that had the transfiguration. It was terrible. <laughs> his, his clothes got a little bit more white. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm showing my age. He had a Doris Day film around his face. Doris Day, I know it's old, but they use it every day on their phones now. But back in the day, they didn't have those filters. And Doris Day all of a sudden looked with this filter. I'm like, yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so. It's very lame. Luke chapter 29, verse 29. He was praying the appearance of his face was altered and his clothes became dazzling white. Dazzling the word for lightning. Matthew chapter 17, verse 2, Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. 
Mark chapter 9, verse 2. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now, Luke doesn't use the word transfigured as Matthew and Mark do. The term transfigured, metamorpho, uh, meta suggests change. Morphous has to do with form. So what's happening here, Kenneth Weese is a Greek scholar. He says it this way. The manner of his outward expression, Jesus, was changed before them. That outward expression coming from and being truly representative of his inner nature. Okay? Literally, the glory inside was unveiled, illuminated with visible glory. I only think of it as a caterpillar, right? I mean, it metamorphosis changes into a butterfly. A butterfly was always there. And a kind of butterfly kind of hides its true identity. And then all of a sudden, a beautiful butterfly emerges. Jesus doesn't become something different. Jesus is seen for who he is. Like some kind of supernatural, infinite light bulb was revealed. Glory, brilliance as the sun spreads, shines right through his garments. And the disciples look at this, this, this glorious revelation. They're catching a glimpse of the glory that the Son had with the Father before the world began. John, John 17. A visible manifestation of God's invisible, infinite glory. Luke says it clear in verse 32. In the transformation of the Son, they saw his glory. I mean, Jesus is walking around. He's healing people. Everyday human form, characteristic, and now we see this blazing radiance of God veiled, become unveiled. Family, this is a testimony of the person of Jesus Christ. If you want to know who Jesus is, here it is. Glory, infinite glory, radiating from the inside out. In a brief moment, the veil of his humanity was lifted and his divine essence was allowed to just shine through. Seeing his glory revealed in a whole new way. Until then, miracles, signs and wonders, unbelievable, raising people from the dead, healing the sick, curing diseases. Now he's transfigured before them. Jesus, no, simply just a moral good teacher has some nice things to say. Gives us ideas and thoughts and kind of points us in the direction of God, like other prophets and other leaders. He does not point to the glory of God. He does not reflect the glory of God. He is the glory of God. Hebrews chapter 1. He, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of God's nature. Which means Jesus is the ultimate expression the unsurpassable, nothing higher possible of the infinite beauty and glory of God. Jesus is the glory of God in human form. And, and he's, he says it himself, you see these witnesses attesting to it. And let me tell you, family, that annihilates all the middle ground. He's, you, you either, either accept the reality of what took place and worship him as the one true and living God, or he's crazy, a lunatic, and... Uh, I, I want nothing to do. There, there's no middle ground. But if we worship him and see him in his glory, then we hear his voice, follow me, listen to me, obey me. And our whole world, our whole center of our life is around him.
Listen. His glory is not just in eternity past. His glory is not just in the moment. His glory is not just in the promise of his return. His glory also is in his mission. Look at verse 30. And behold, two men were standing with him, Moses Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, I'm not sure how he knew it was Moses and Elijah. You think about that? We have name tags. Hi, my name is Moses. Hi, my name is Elijah. Oh, who's that? Oh, I see a name tag. I'm Moses. I don't know. Those guys left earth way before the disciples were born. But they knew it was Moses. They knew it was Elijah. We could certainly see why it was these two men. Moses, a clear representation of the law of God, right? The lawgiver, Ten Commandments. Brought down the tablets from the mountain. Elijah, representing the prophets, a great prophet of God. Moses, a champion of the Exodus. God raised him up to lead the people, uh, the Israelites, out of Egypt, out of bondage. Elijah stood for the prophets, and, and he called the people back to the law of God. Elijah worked miracles, right? Raised the dead. Shut the rain in, in heaven as judgment against Israel. He prayed down fire to defeat the prophets of Baal. He, he spoke God's authoritative word. He issued warnings. He suffered as a persecuted prophet. And when you have this, this man, this Moses and, and Elijah, many of those days they would say the whole Old Testament is made up of the law and the prophets. So Elijah and, and, and Moses uh, are really the, the summary of the Old Testament. You say, okay. What does that mean? Let, let me tell you what I think it means, or at least part of what it means. Jesus said this in Matthew of himself. He said, I did not come, he had not come to abolish the law or prophets. I have come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I didn't come to abolish the law and prophets. I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Interesting, too, these men, both Elijah and Moses, Moses and Elijah, spoke from the mountaintop. Exodus 31, Moses on Mount Sinai, Elijah, Mount Horeb, another name for Sinai. 1 Kings 19, they both had a glimpse of God's glory. Both had famous departures. You know the story? Moses was buried by who? God himself. Elijah taken up in a chariot of fire. When Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus on the mountain, it was just the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament was being represented, but also that it was being, going to be fulfilled in Christ. In fact, look at the word he uses, departure. Isn't that interesting? He spoke of his departure. You know what that word is? That word is the word exodus. Jesus is talking to Moses, of all people, about his exodus. His death, his crucifixion, is an exodus. It's obvious that they would think right away of, of what God did in Israel, what God did in the work of, of calling his people out of bondage and leading them and redeeming them from Egypt. Obviously, Moses knew all about redemption and, and salvation and deliverance. I believe what this is pointing to is the mission of Jesus with a new and greater redemption, a new and greater deliverance. The new exodus brings deliverance from ultimate bondage. Jesus would finally deliver his people from the slavery to sin, the penalty to sin, death and hell, through forgiveness of sins, through the promise of eternal life, the promise to lead us into an eternal, into the eternal promised land. 
We sang a song from Revelations. You know, in Revelation chapter 1, it speaks of the bride, the church, the, the, the wife of the lamb that was slain. And so they were carried to a high mountain, shown on a holy city of Jerusalem, coming down from heaven. And then it says, having the glory of God in it, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or moon. Why? The shining of the city is the glory of God who gives us light. Glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamb. You see, Jesus will accomplish all of that. All of the mission, restoration, forgiveness of sins, but he'll do it not by going to Jerusalem on a throne, but going to Jerusalem on a cross. He will accomplish what it says. What he talked to him about the exodus, something that was about to be accomplished at Jerusalem. You see, it's obvious he's saying he must suffer, be rejected, and die first. Jesus has work to do, work to accomplish. Moses and Elijah knew about it. They spoke about it in their prophetic ministry. And now as everyone's awake, Peter again, the spokesman, verse 33, sees what's going on, sees the glory of God. And as the men were parting from him, Moses and Elijah, Peter said to Jesus, Master, called him Master, which is interesting. It is good that we are here. Is it good that we are here? Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then Luke adds, not knowing what he said. In other words, he's saying he's a knucklehead. Right? Impulsive Peter. Notice Elijah and, uh, and Moses are getting ready to leave. And he says, you know what? Let's set up three tents. The actual word being used there is tabernacle. And some people think that Peter was, in haste, was thinking of the Feast of Tabernacles. That, that very important feast in Jerusalem for the people of Israel where they would remember the, the, the exodus, remember the deliverance, remember the provision and the protection that God had on his people as they were wandering in the wilderness. They would set up these booths with, with uh, different um, palm branches and they would sit out there for a week remembering all that God provided. But let me tell you something else about the Feast of Tabernacles. It was designed not only to remember and commemorate what God did, but it's also in the festival a celebration of what God will do in the future of the coming kingdom, of the righteous reign and rule of the Messiah in that festival, the kingdom to come. And maybe this way, this was, what, this was Peter's way of saying, hey, you know what, I don't want this to end. I see y'all leaving. Why don't you hang out? Let's build some tabernacles. We're not really sure, but one thing we know when he says not knowing what he said is that Peter is saying, hey, let me, let, me build, let me build three tabernacles, one for you, Lord, Jesus, one for you, Moses, and one for you, uh, 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 Elijah, law, the prophets, and Jesus. Nice. All together. Peter's missing something. Jesus doesn't have peers. They just witnessed the glory, infinite, glorious transfiguration. And Peter wants to put these three men on equal plane with equal tents, equal tabernacles. And that's not going to happen. Right? 
Jesus Christ just showed his splendor and supreme majesty. And Jesus Christ deserves all the worship, honor, and glory, and praise. And to think he is, and if you think this way as well, on a level of anything or anyone, we're robbing him and not giving and ascribing him the glory due his name. The mission, and finally the descending glory. So let's put this together. You're on a mountain. You're on a mountain. Jesus reveals his, his intrinsic divine glory. They get a glimpse. There are two men on the mountain speaking about the exodus. Moses is there. Peter wants to build tabernacles. And then all of a sudden, verse 34. And he was saying these things. A cloud came, overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Appropriate response of the divine glory when God shows up, Acts Isaiah, it traumatizes. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. What's going on? In the Old Testament days, God's glory described God's dwelling with his people. It was called the Shekinah glory. In Exodus chapter 40, Moses finishes the tabernacle an elaborate construction tent that they would meet and they would move. And when he finished it, he met, with the, he met God there, the people met with Moses there, but when he finished the work that God had told him to do to build his tabernacle, this is what it says in Exodus 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meetings, where Moses would meet with God. The cloud would cover the tent of meetings, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meetings because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. First Kings chapter 8, Solomon builds the temple and what happens? The glory of the Lord fills the temple. Centuries before Luke's narrative, Moses is also on a mountain. He's on Mount Sinai. God comes down in chapter 24 of Exodus and it says the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days and on the seventh day, what happened? God speaks to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Fear struck the people. God comes down in this cloud and speaks to Moses out of the cloud, the voice of God. One last thing. Exodus 33, you probably know the story. Moses begs God to see his glory. Yeah, I've seen it in the, in the pillar of fire. I've seen the cloud come down. Moses says, I want to get a glimpse of the very presence of God, the glory of God, the presence of God. God, you promised that you would go with me as I lead the people to the promised land, as I lead the exodus. You said you would promise, but now I want to see your glory. I, I want to see your glory. I want your presence now. I want a personal encounter with you now. Exodus 33. Show me your glory. Show me your perfect, brilliant, bright, infinite greatness, unimaginable beauty. Your glory, God, show me. And what does God say? God says, listen, while my glory is passing by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand. Until I have passed by, then I will make my hand away. Take my hand away and you shall see my back, my face shall not be seen. No man sees my glory and lives. 
It's been 600 years since the Shekinah glory came. And now, century later, there's another mountain. There's a cloud. There is glory again. Dazzling, blinding, bright, divine glory. Also, just like in Moses, there is fear. You see in the text. The glory of the Lord was revealed. And on this mountain, Moses is back. The cloud is there. There is even a voice from heaven. Mount Sinai all over again. Not exactly. When Moses came down from the mountain to the tent of meeting, his face shined because he was talking with God, the Bible says. He reflected the glory of God like the moon reflects the light of the sun. But Jesus is the glory of God. He emanates the glory of God. He's the source of it. The unsurpassable, the unapproachable glory of God is not reflected glory, for Jesus is the glory of God. Remember, God told Moses, you cannot see my glory my, in, my, in the raw form or you will die. Remember, Moses built the tabernacle on Sinai where God's glory came. What is this narrative showing us? Jesus Christ is the tabernacle, the dwelling of God. That's where John 1, 14 comes in. The apostle John who was there writes this about Jesus. John 1, 14. The word, the eternal word, God himself, Jesus, the word, became flesh and tabernacled among us. Then he says, we saw his glory. We saw his glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father. No one else. Full of grace and truth. As the Shekinah cloud came and overshadowed them, the words to envelop them, a voice speaks from heaven again. This time it says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Family, God just answered the question for us. Who is this Jesus? Everyone keeps saying. Now the father speaks. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. He's the glorious chosen son of God of the same nature. Existing in eternity past. That's what it means to be the son of God. There's one God. This one God exists in three persons. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is the eternal son. David will speak about him in Psalm 2. You are my son, he says. Isaiah will speak about the suffering servant who God delights in. In Isaiah 42.1, God says, Behold my servant, my suffering servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. The chosen servant, the suffering servant who'll give his life as a sacrifice for God's people. He'll be wounded for our transgressions. He'll be crushed for our iniquities, Isaiah tells us. And now Father says, my son, my eternal son, the one whom I love, the one whom I've chosen, listen to him. Moses said back in Deuteronomy 18, God's going to raise up a prophet who's going to lead you into the eternal promised land. Listen to him. God is pleased, delights in his son, and therefore he is pleased and delights in all those who trust and listen to his son. The pleasure God takes in us is grounded, listen, in the pleasure that he takes in his own beloved son. The heart of the glory of, of, of God is the love and the glory he has for his son. 
And we are enveloped in that love in the gospel. Verse 36, when the voice is spoken, Jesus was found alone. Luke saying, look, Moses is gone, Elijah is gone. Jesus is the truest temple. He's the, he's the greatest tabernacle to end all tabernacles. We don't need a lawgiver. Jesus will fulfill the law. Obey it perfectly. We don't need the voice of God anymore. We have Jesus. Hebrew says that God spoke in old days, long ago, with prophets. But these days he spoke through his son. The final revelation. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power when he made purification of sins and sat down. The job is over. Sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Sacrifice of all sacrifice. Priest of all priests. Tabernacle of all tabernacle. Elijah and Moses have vanished. Jesus is still there because he has a mission. He has a mission fulfilled. He's going to Jerusalem. And through him and his mission, listen, and through him and his mission, in the person and work of Jesus, the infinite beauty and the glory of God can envelop you and I. You can know his love. You can know his forgiveness, his acceptance, and you can have his glorious presence in your life. How? Listen. When you and I really understand that Jesus in his glorious brightness, in his majestic oneness with his Father's glory, in his infinite greatness and incalculable worth, was broken for you. He was stamped out for you. His light was snuffed out for you. He was made sin for you. Then you'll fall on your face in humbled, surrendered worship. Then you can be enveloped in his love. When you see the King of Kings hanging on the cross, taking all our sins, our self-righteous, pompous attitude, our rebellion to be our own Savior, our own Lord, doing what we want. And we see the Father judging our sin on Jesus' glorious yet broken body. Then we will see the true love of God. The Bible says that He, God the Father, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Is when you see the first exodus. Yeah, God delivered his people, his hopeless people who had a harsh oppressor. They couldn't deliver themselves and he led them out of bondage. But now Jesus comes to lead his people out from a greater enemy, sin, death, and hell. The ultimate exodus, the ultimate deliverance, the ultimate redemption. Through his death and burial and resurrection and ascension, the greater Moses, Jesus, will lead God's people through a greater exodus. The freedom from the bondage of sin. And finally, family, listen. Give me two more minutes. You must see that on this mountain where Jesus is, is a foreshadow of another mount, another hill, outside the city of Jerusalem called Calvary. Here on this mountain we see Jesus in glory, enveloped by his Father, but on Calvary's hill we see him stripped, shamed, forsaken, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here he's enveloped in the cloud of God's presence on the cross he is forsaken. On the mountain he's surrounded by Moses and Elijah, heroes of the faith, but on the cross he's surrounded by criminals hanging on the left and the right. On this mountain Peter said, man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna build a tabernacle, man, we're gonna hang out and stay forever. But on the cross he runs and many abandon him. On the mountain his clothes are shining Dazzling with lightning, 
like lightning, surrounded by God the Father's love and affirmation, but on the cross, his clothes are soaked in blood, torn away and gambled, and he's in total darkness. Jesus goes, listen, from glorious light to ultimate darkness so that we can go from ultimate darkness to his glorious light and love. Calvin said, For in the cross of Christ, as in a splendid theater, the incomparable goodness of God is set before the whole world. The glory of God shines indeed in all creatures on high and below, but never more brightly than in the cross. End quote. I'm going to invite the band up, and I want you to track with me as they come up, okay? Track with me, please. Let me remind everyone here, we are all, we are all glory seekers, okay? We're all pouring out worship to something or someone. Whatever is in a position of glory, weightiness, value, prominence, preeminence in your life, the center of your existence is what you and I worship. Your longing, the longing of your desires, the treasure of your heart, where your passion, your enthusiasm, the most important thing a person in your life is in the position of glory, is in the position of worship. So let me ask you, has something, someone, besides the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, take title in your heart's functional trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? Who are you looking to for life-sustaining stability, for security, for love, for acceptance? When we do not ascribe to God the preeminence and priority and glory that is due him, it's called idolatry. Calvin again said, where our hearts are like human idol factories. Every one of us from his mother's womb are experts in inventing idols. So here's my prayer this morning. My prayer for all of us this morning is to see the infinite glory of the one who gave his life so that you can have life. To see that because God loves us, he gave us what's best for us, and what he gave us is himself. To be enveloped in his love, to be enveloped in his glory. Not infinite glory, but finite glories as we step in as, as C.S. Lewis into the dance. To see that God alone is the all-satisfying, glorious God who can alone capture, redeem, and satisfy the human heart. Will you this morning ascribe all the glory that's due him? Listen, we can't make God more glorious than he is, but we can affirm we can attribute, we can ascribe glory to him. That's the choice we have to make. For he alone deserves that glory. So we're going to sing. And the chorus is, Savior, worthy of honor and glory, worthy of all our praise, you overcome. Jesus, awesome and powerful forever, awesome and great is your name. Will you, will you sing that with your whole heart to Jesus and ascribe to him the glory that is due his name? Let us pray. Father, it is an absolute privilege to come and to worship you. It is an absolute honor and privilege to know that Jesus Christ, the glorious, great, eternal Son, has made a way for us to see you, to love you, to worship you, to tear down idols in our lives and to worship the one true and living God through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Father, as we sing this song, stir our hearts by your spirit. As your word tells us in 2 Corinthians 
4. The glory of the gospel is in the face of Christ. Let us see him. Let us worship him. If there's someone here that doesn't know him, may he come to know him now by the power of your spirit, by the unveiling of the darkness of our eyes, that we would confess our sins and turn to Jesus. Help us all to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.